Thanks for pressing play and welcome to a very special episode. Today, a wide-ranging conversation. Wide-ranging or raging? (laughs) Raging and raging. Why startups should go slow. Why too much money makes people stupid. How COVID-19 pushed healthcare ahead 10 to 20 years. Why hospitals are experiencing an existential threat because they are too much like airlines. We examine the Theranos scandal and Silicon Valley's disappointing, and I would say disgusting, response so far to uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine. Today, a riveting dialogue with one of the smartest minds I know. Brian Roberts is here. He's a senior partner at legendary venture capital firm Venrock in Silicon Valley, and he is the man that many people consider the number one health uh, care tech VC on the planet. Also, pay special attention to what Brian thinks CEOs should be thinking about and doing to survive and thrive over the next 12 months. Now, is your company an awesome place for your people? It turns out 66% of employees say no. Imagine your people were able to talk or text any critical question about their work and job and instantly get an answer. That's where my friends at Socrates.ai come in. And that's what they do. They help make your company employee awesome. Check out Socrates.ai today. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the oddcast exclusively for business people who value real, different dialogue with the legendary people making our world a different place. Now, hey-ho, let's go. So how are you, Brian? I'm doing great. You know, it's it's been an interesting six months, like super interesting week. But at least from the from the startup innovation ecosystem, a pretty fascinating six months, right? So m- maybe let's start there. I've been sharing with people who are not in our industry that my inbox has never been as interesting and exciting as it is right now. Um, but I'm curious. Tell me what you're seeing. Well, you're seeing a like you have seen a a huge sort of deleveraging of risk assets out there across tech, across healthcare, public companies like you know, the these days all of the the broken SPACs are getting headlines, right? You know, it's so you know, near I think there's you know, a handful of SPACs. Uh, we got super lucky with Lucid uh, is is doing fine, but most of them are trading at what 20, 30, 40% of their of their SPAC value. But it's not just and you know, look, personal perspective, you know, those were overly risky businesses anyway that needed to rely on the MA disclosure rules to talk about projections three, four, five years out, you know, who knows what look, things look like that far out, which allows you lots of latitude in how you think about it. Um, but if you look at biotech IPOs last year, I think three quartiles of them are down from their IPO price, right? Maybe 80% of them are down from their IPO price. Like it's just, it's 
it's been a huge rotation out of risk assets. And you see it, you saw it in enterprise SaaS, right? Um, and it's a little bit less so in the overall market because those were buoyed by the huge tech businesses that have held up pretty well, right? But everybody else, multiples have sort of contracted in half. Uh, and it used to be, you know, back when you and I were only middle-aged and not ancient, uh, it used to be that the public markets would go down and it would take six or nine or 12 months for the private markets to go down, right? Because those pools of capital were pretty separate. And it, you know, took the <laughs> took the venture idiots like me a little while to clue in and be like, wait a second. Now, over the course of the last five years, such a huge percentage of the money going into private companies has been coming from public investors, right? Like people aren't just public investors or private investors anymore. It's a huge crossover, right? And so I think you're seeing a much quicker reaction in the private markets than you did the last couple of downturns because all those people with, you know, have 80% of their tens of billions of dollars in the public markets have had their asses handed to them over the course of the last six months. and you know, they're sitting in the same conference room with the private guys. And they're like, no, 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 no. Like this is the world has changed. My hope in all honesty is stuff slows down a little bit, right? I realize it's not super popular, right? Like the whole blitz scaling, move fast and break things, you know, get, get huge fast uh, for value creation, for ego, it you know, et cetera, has sort of been the, the talk of the day for the last five or 10 years. But I think there's something to be said for, for getting your stuff right, right? Like it takes, you know, you've been, you've been in the business forever. Like it takes 10 years to build a good product and it probably takes five years to build a functional product that you're embarrassed by. I love you, Brian. <laughs> right? Like, so- you know, the whole notion of like, I'm going to raise money, you know, at some huge price. And then in six months, I'm going to raise it at 2x that price. And six months later, I'm going to raise it at 2x that price. Like, there's no way that value is being created that way. Right. And then you get situations where, you know, people do stuff that is that they think is good for the business in the short term, but is really detrimental to it long term. Right. Like, the biggest one in my mind is, going out and getting a bunch of customers before you have product market fit, right? Like you feel really good in the short term. And then two, three, four years in, all those customers figure out that the product's not delivering the value they want and they churn out. And that blows. And this is another one of the reasons why I think this term MVP, minimum viable product, is so fucking stupid. Because if you listen to the words and you put any other word after the first two words, its idiocy becomes apparent, right? So talk to your wife about your desire to raise minimum viable children, right? It, it, it's insane. And the other thing that does it, it's your point on the churn, this asshole idiot mindset forgets the other one, the other axiom in life that says you only get one chance at a first impression. That's right. Why? And like, so it, and so it's, you know, 
I do mostly really early stage stuff. And over the course of the last five or 10 years, it's gotten even earlier stage, right? And this, this balance of figuring out, like you don't want to go all sort of IBM, right? And develop a product over five years with never ever talking to anybody, right? Like that doesn't work. Um, so you, you want to figure out this sort of this circular flow of how do I work on a product and get some feedback from the market? But there's no point in being embarrassed in front of a broader universe than you have to be, right? Well, and didn't, in the old days, didn't we call this having alpha products and alpha customers? We, we used to talk about some customers as being, quote unquote, development partner customers. And then we once we felt like we were good with them, we would expand it a little. And then we'd have beta customers and we'd sort of do it all over. Like, wh- why did we stop fucking doing that? Because people raised a ton of money. Uh, you know, another old axiom is, from my perspective, is, you know, f- too much money t- makes anybody stupid, right? Like, there's just no, there's no pressure in the system to sort of do more with less, to be careful, stuff like that. Um, so you need some trade-off hurdle rate. Like I was, I was talking to an entrepreneur last night and I was like, look, they, they're just starting out and they've got some interest from potential customers. I was like, okay, let's, let's actually decide right now how many customers, how many customers slash developer partners slash alpha, you know, users we'll take right now. Okay. Is it two? Is it three? Like, let's not do one because you don't want to overfit for one person. Right. But, but let's make it two or three. And if you have, the nice thing is if you then have five or eight or 10 folks who are interested, all of a sudden you have back pressure, right? Like I only have three slots. So how do I go about now choosing the best partners for me, which is nothing about scale and nothing about pricing and money, right? It's all about feedback and persistency and helping you figure out what you want the product to be. Amen. Hallelujah. Brian. Excellent. Now, you and I haven't spent much time together since the pandemic started. And as it's been playing out, I've thought about you many, many times. And so I'm curious how you look on the past and the present and going forward at sort of healthcare tech and the role it has played with the pandemic. Yeah, I think the pandemic pushed changes in behavior in healthcare forward a decade or two in 12 months, right? It's like, you know, every once in a while, Apple pushes me a new iOS on the iPhone. I'm like, oh crap, I hate this. I got to learn. I got to relearn a whole bunch of stuff. I don't want to do it. And then, you know, I'm pissy for like four hours and then I have figured it out. Healthcare tech was kind of like that in the pandemic, right? You're not, you're not going into a doctor's like, you're not going someplace where you have nearly a surety of catching COVID, right? And so you figured out virtual care, a whole bunch of stuff. And on the provider side, people had to figure out how to do that well. Uh, so I think you've, as with most things, you know, it gets overdone, right? None of us are either as smart or as stupid as our, you know, m- the people who love us the most or hate us the most think we are. And the same is true here, right? Like, virtual primary care, telemedicine and all that stuff. Like it's not going to save the world, but it's, but you've gone from 
single digit adoption rates north of 25, 30, 40%, you know, I would say some exceptions where bricks and mortar providers have economic incentives to be back in person, right? Like salespeople and docs are the, you know, follow the money. But the interesting thing is, uh, I'd be curious what your experience is. My personal experience, having had uh, uh, several uh, virtual doctor visits, is, yes, there's some obvious things that she can't do with you, you know. She's not going to sort of make you cough and do that horrible thing or you know, certain things you, you're not going to experience. But in general, you know, I have a neuromuscular condition and I have to see a neuromuscular doc at UCSF once a year. And I saw her virtually and she was able, I asked her when it was done, how much of what you were wanting to get done with me, do you feel like you were able to get done even though we're not in person, she said for this kind of a checkup, virtually a hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's true. Very broadly, a place that you probably, one probably would not have guessed it, but was absolutely true. Behavioral health, mental health visits, right? Pre pandemic, a hundred percent of pretty much in person, right? Who, who did their therapy virtually or in group therapy, virtually, et cetera. And, uh, it went obviously to a hundred percent. There was actually, it was interesting. We're in a, a, a mental health business called Lyra health. And at the beginning of the pandemic, they saw not a huge increase in visits. Everything went from in-person to virtual, right? On a dime. Okay. You also saw an increase in severity. Okay. Of the people getting therapy because at the beginning of the pandemic, people were having more trouble finding, you know, uh, safe spaces, you know, where where you can where you have privacy, right? And so if you if you were sicker, you worked a lot harder at finding that. And then even as things have opened up, people figured out the virtual stuff works just fine, right? And so it stick it's sticking pretty hard. Well, and for testing, and of course, we want to touch on <laughs> your favorite testing company, <laughs> Theranos. But for testing, I can go down to my local Quest Diagnostics, which is maybe a 10-minute drive from my house. I, they can take blood. They can do all that stuff. So, you know, we can do that. And I actually, I lived, I've had the same doctor for 25 years. And for eight or 10 of those years, I lived in Tahoe. And I said to her when I moved, I said, Dr. Kathy, you know, I absolutely love and adore you can you still be my doctor if I move to Tahoe? And she said, I don't care where you are. She said, you can always call me or text me. And when you need to come see me, you need to come see me. But other than that, I don't care. And she, you know, and this was pre zoom and all that sort of shit. And that worked just fine. And so has much of the country been experiencing this breakthrough? And do you think it's sort of uh, impact is, is longstanding? Yes. I think, uh, I think lots of the country has, I think there are still, there are still some anachronistic state laws that were sort of put on hold during the pandemic by decree that uh, need to be evolved in order to really fix that. Uh, people love to talk about how you need state licensure to be a doc. I actually think that's pretty much of a red herring. It's not that big a deal. But there are states that say um, you have to, you can't, pres you, you can't prescribe a medicine unless you see somebody in person. 
right? Which is just entrenchment for bricks and mortar docks, right? Who make up the boards, the state boards that make up these rules. How's that? I mean, my wife, Carrie, uh, had a neck injury in college and she suffered from seriously debilitating headaches ever since. And she's in treatment for it. And the treatments are working very well in the last handful of years. It's gotten a lot better. But anyway, as we've been dealing with this situation over time, there was one night in particular, and it was maybe early evening. And she, I, I've never seen her literally writhing in pain. Like there was absolutely nothing I could do. And I was on the verge of taking her to the ER and I texted and called our doctor and she spent some time on the phone with her and she said, all right, let me prescribe you this, that, and the other a few things. I can't remember what, um, of course I'm going to go to the, uh, the pharmacy and get them immediately. And she said, and then let's, she said, call me back an hour after she's taken the meds and let's take a, an assessment. And if she needs to go to the hospital, she will. And da, da, da. Any, anyway, all that worked. Yeah. Turned out she didn't need to go to the hospital. Our doctor made her an appointment with a specialist, you know, blah, blah. Yeah. And the treatment continued. And so a, for the patient and the loved one of the patient, this is the outcome that you want. And B as a healthcare system, isn't this what you want? Why do I have to now, do you want me to take her to an ER? Do you want my doc to have to go to like, isn't this what we fucking want? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, uh, Except that, look, there are uh, hospitals, health systems, ERs uh, have an existential strategic problem, right? They are, um, they are large CapEx organizations. So they look a little bit you know, like airlines, right? Airlines, you need people sitting in seats uh, to make any money and you have high fixed costs. Hospitals, you need people in beds, right? To the extent that the hospital is making the termination, they, you know, come to the ER. They make a lot more money, right? Now, there are a whole bunch of efforts underway to try and figure out how to incentivize provider systems to take great care of people more efficiently. For the most part, that actually means caring for them before they get to the hospital. So you keep them out of the hospital, right? It's, but it's really hard to get over the, the economic incentive in, inherent in what's called fee-for-service medicine. I'll give you an example. There's a Medicare uh, has for now some number of years had a program whereby health organizations can band, can band together and create what's called an accountable care organization where they get, if they save money compared to a local benchmark, they get to keep half of it, right? There are essentially two types of these accountable care organizations ones that are affiliated with hospitals and ones that are just independent docs. The independent docs ones save money hand over fist. The ones associated with hospitals basically save no money because there's no incentive set, right? Like that accountable care organization, if it saves some money, it's taking money out of the pocket of the hospital, which is its owner anyway. So why would I bother? 
unbelievable. But of course, my family doc has no financial incentive to send, in this example, my wife to the hospital, or does she? Depends. Depends. So in many urban locales, there are a bunch of hospitals, right? So there are a bunch of hospital beds. As people get have better preventive care taken of taking care of them, those hospitals are looking for ways to fill beds. So they're looking essentially for more top of funnel. Best way to have more top of funnel is to own a bunch of primary care docs. So that those docs then send patients to you. I don't think any docs or health systems are overtly malevolent about trying to get you know patients into into hospitals but you know on the margin if if your incentive set is to keep someone out of the hospital you you talk to the doctor talks to the patient at 11 p.m. on a saturday night right because it's hit, it would hit their pocketbook to the extent that it doesn't hit your pocketbook 11 o'clock on a Saturday night is kind of a pain in the ass, right? So why not? You'll recall 10 or 20 years ago when you would call your doctor's office, you'd get the, you'd get the phone record and they said, hey, if it's after nine to five and this is an emergency, go to the ER, right? That's right. Rather than, hey, give me a call on my cell phone um, right. and let, let's see if we can resolve this. Right. And don't... Uh, and I, this is going to get into a cost conversation, but I mean, the power of this category called concierge doctor is extraordinary. I mean, I grew up in a very good country, Canada. And when I tell my friends in Canada that I can text my doctor and there is a high degree of likelihood that within an hour or two, I will get a response. And if it's some kind of an emergency I know that she'll stop every, I mean, I've talked to her on chairlifts and shit, you know, when she's on vacation and th that is an extraordinary level of care, but it doesn't look like we're building a system that can deliver that level of care. Well, um, you're seeing more and more of that level of care existing in Medicare Advantage, Medicare shared savings programs, places where that frontline doctor provider person essentially your primary care doc has an economic incentive to keep you healthier and keep your overall costs down right and on the plus side you know it, it, the smaller amounts of money matter a ton to those primary care docs because they're one of the worst paid specialties out there right it's not like you're trying to move the needle for the cardiothoracic surgeon or the orthopedist specialist, right? Who are, who are making lots of money. Like these primary care docs for, for a number of years have, have been in it for the mission. Yeah. And, and in our case, and in the case of a lot of doctors who provide this kind of service um, to, to make a tech analogy, they adopted a SAS model a long time ago. Right. And I've been paying my doctor an annual fee uh, for myself and for my wife, uh, you know, for 25 years. And so if you want right. to, her financial for, incentive is the renewal, right? So that works, that works for the top one or 5%, right? Uh, of, of, of the U S for the rest of the folks, what you're really talking about 
doing is, is incentivizing that behavior by providing the doc a cut of the savings from keeping patients out of the hospital, right? Hospitals, right. what, 4,000 bucks a day? Like, it doesn't take a lot, of those, a lot of decreased hospital days to add up to a bunch of money, right, to provide that incentive for the docs. And digital medicine helps with that, right? Because just like we're seeing now with uh, mental health, um, you don't need to drive to a therapist's office to see her. You can just sit here in your own house and and do your own thing. And and so I guess as as friction is eliminated from patients being able to interact with docs and particularly do it digitally with video, sometimes without, sometimes over text, sometimes via voicemail, whatever the doc and the patient are comfortable with, um, shouldn't theoretically the delivery of medicine, the cost of the delivery of medicine go down because of the digitization, making it possible for more primary care docs to be more available to more patients? Or am I, is my calculus wrong? No, look, I think improving the user experience and the efficiency of the delivery of care uh, by utilizing technology, but you know, not just you know iPads to do a virtual visit, but um, but data feeds to un- so that you're not recreating the wheel every time you're talking to people, right? Um, that that stuff should uh, should allow for a for easier, greater frequency of touches, and therefore catch problems earlier than one otherwise might, right? Which, which is a huge boon to both the patient from an outcomes and a cost perspective. So that, that, that for sure should happen. You know, there's been a lot of talk and not yet a ton of outcomes on, you know, moving moving even the in-person care that needs to go on out of the expensive hospital into the home, right? Which that's probably the next step in this whole process. There's a bunch of people trying to get going on it. You know, you need to figure out devices and technology to help you get data and feeds and stuff like that. And, uh, and it's probably something that works more easily in urban settings for density of population than rural settings, uh, at least in the near term. So do we see, you know, it's an interesting thing we see going on, which is the uh, completely uh, recreation of what a home is, right? So it's our gym. Of course, it's our workplace. For many, it's our school. And so now it's a hospital. And, you know, this may be a side point, but as somebody who home hospice, a person that I love dearly, I just find it shocking that we outsource the care of our loved ones as they die and we sort of see them for a little bit and leave them alone. When somebody I love is at that stage of their life, I want them to be around me and I want the family to be able to have as much time with them as possible. And yet we lock them behind hospital doors and large machines with horrible noises and people who don't love them. Yeah. Assisted living facilities and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it's it's tough, and I think we're all pretty bad at end of life discussions. Really, at the end of the day, and then you just you know something gathers momentum rather than sort of being a, a proactive discussion about things. Right. Now, hey, before we leave healthcare for a sec, um, 
I just have to ask you the obvious question. There's a lot of people who say, you know, the COVID numbers are inflated. Hospitals have had huge financial incentives to classify people as COVID positive because the government's given doctors and hospitals big Scooby snacks for doing that. And so the COVID numbers are an absolute lie, Brian, because um, the government has incentivized the healthcare system to make what is really just a a flu into a, a crisis so that they could make more money. What say you? I think that's a total crock of shit. (laughs) <laughs> I got I got to tell you, um, <laughs> the uh, look, healthcare workers in science have been the standouts of the last two to three years, right? The notion that we could go to knowing nothing about a disease to uh, great vaccines in that time period is stunning, and you know. There's no one's worked harder than healthcare workers at more risk over the last couple of years. I do believe we're not out of it, right? COVID's COVID's gonna COVID's gonna be around for a while, right? We kind to some degree we got lucky in this last wave. There were lots of you know personal and business disruptions, but mortality was way lower with Omicron strain than prior strains, right? Um, but there's no reason that has to be true, right? If you think, if you think about, you know, the, the evolutionary drive of viruses, uh, greater infectivity is, is a fitness parameter for viruses. Like you're right. you like, if you're, if, if a, a strain that is more infective goes right and takes over morbidity, mortality, you know, severity of disease is pretty much a random parameter, right? It's not like this is not, there are absolutely some viruses, Ebola, where severity of disease is a negative fitness parameter, right? People die too fast in order to spread the disease. With with COVID, there's way more than enough time to spread it before someone gets so sick that they get isolated. Right. Especially with, you know, this, the trickiest, most diabolically smart thing about this virus that this virus has going for it is infectivity pre-symptomatic. Like, have we I, seen in, much of that in the past, Brian? Excuse my ignorance. No, I haven't. Like, I didn't even I actually didn't even really know that was a thing in all honesty. Right. Three, four, five, six days of being able to spread a disease before you knew you had it. Because when I develop a regular cold or even the regular flu, as soon as I have symptoms, I know something's up. And if I know something's up, I try to take care of myself and others, right? And so we're used to this. When I feel a certain way, it means I might be contagious. And therefore, I conduct myself in a different way than I would otherwise. So we've never really seen this before where you're contagious and don't experience anything. I Look, I don't, certainly not on this scale. I mean, I'm sure there are some little diseases here and there where that happens for some time period, right? But generally, you contract something, there's a pretty quick timeline to feeling symptomatic, at which point you isolate, either because you're smart and caring about the people around you or because you feel like crap and you're like, I don't want to get out of bed. It's right. <laughs> results are the same. Yes. Um, right? So there's, 
like there's I don't think there's any real reason why we should hold out comfort that we won't get something that's infectious like Omicron, but severity like Delta. Or worse, potentially. We don't know, yeah. right? And yeah, so from know. your from your sort of viewpoint, what would you tell me about what the next 12 to 24 months look like as it relates to C-19? I think it's just, I think that, I think the disruption. So on the one hand, vaccines, awesome, great for people who choose to get vaccinated and boosted, you know, you're relatively safe, right? Um, And if everybody in the universe were vaccinated, then you'd actually get a leg up on sort of tamping the whole virus thing down. But there's way too large a reservoir of people who are immune compromised, not vaccinated, et cetera, who serve as petri dishes for new strains of the new strains of the virus. I think the big thing that I think about over the next 12 or 24 months is just a real inability to long-term plan with any fidelity. Right? Like I think right. we'll all go back to plus or minus living our lives. Some people will be super comfortable getting on commercial planes and some people won't some people will do it with you know with really tight fitting masks etc they'll do it only when they have to i don't like i don't think business travel is going to come back in a huge big way i think there'll be some personal travel that comes back because people are like well i'm i'm willing to take some risk to have a little fun in my life now right but i'll zoom but i'll zoom in on the business stuff so i think there but the 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 disruption part will come from school closures like stuff stuff that comes up but you can't see you know you can't see more than a week ahead so you give it a shot yeah you're gonna have to be more flexible and do you think i mean i know it's hard to handicap it but uh uh, the likelihood of one uh a strain emerging that's um you know that really shuts everything back down again that is omi plus delta um do we have any idea to handicap this thing if you were a betting man or anything like that? I think we're likely to get a strain like that and we're unlikely to shut down. And so our, the worst could be ahead. Well, no, because the vaccinations. I don't think like, yes, if you, for, for, for an unvaccinated population, yes, I think the worst could be ahead. For the vaccinated population, no, I don't think, I don't think anything's going to approach Q2, Q3 of 2020. And can you tell me beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is no bill gates chip in the vaccine (laughs) you know um i am amazed at the things people think can happen did you hear about there's some guy trying to promote this thing on the internet to try to get people to believe that um birds aren't real do you hear about that one i saw that (laughs) Uh, now sticking with uh light topics the last handful of days have been extraordinary in that we've seen the first uh, atta- attack of consequence in Europe since September 1st, 1939. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, um, you're one of the smartest guys I know. You're one of the big ding-dongs in Silicon Valley. How does all this look to you? Scary. You know, look, uh, uh, on the one hand, it took all of a week to revitalize and bring together a whole bunch of countries who you know for a a long time have been you know ambivalent about each other uh on the other hand you've got a 
mega narcissistic megalomaniac, right? Um, and, and you know, and those people exist in the universe, uh, but when they, uh, but the the uncertainty or the cert- the certainty of a negative outcome, like when they get backed into a corner, you know, all bets are off. Um, and so like I, my, uh, I spent, I spent, I spent all weekend glued to Twitter. Uh, you know, probably like we try to keep our kids off of devices when they're eight. Right. I was like every eight minutes I was, I was on it looking at it and, and look, the Ukrainian folks have done extraordinary things, right? They're, uh, willpower and resilience essentially provided thus far provided time for the rest of for much of the rest of the world to find their spine right and and do things that you know you'd say well of course that's the right thing to do the thing that i'm the thing that i'm muddling over that i don't have a good answer to and i hope somebody does is how what kind of an off-ramp can you provide the narcissist uh, in order to save a little face and exit, right? Uh, yes. And, and, I, and I don't know what that is. Do you have an opinion on um, Silicon Valley and the tech industry's response so far to the crisis? Well, I did hear that Pornhub cut off Russia. So I figured that means that the whole thing's over in like 48 hours. I saw that too. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, Pornhub is a Canadian company. <laughs> so there you go. All good people in the world. Look, I, you know, uh, people can throw darts at Elon Musk all they want. You know, the, the guy getting Starlink up and running in Ukraine in, you know, sub a day, like that's impressive. Uh, and I think you've had, you've had a series of things going on there. Like, I, you know, It'll be interesting to see what the digital cyber, whether hacking or regular middle of the road actions and responses do in this whole thing. That plus, you know, now some hopefully reasonably robust economic sanctions. But on the economic sanctions... According to the Wall Street Journal, there's roughly the U.S. is currently still buying roughly 700,000 barrels of what is now Russian blood oil a day. So we didn't stop doing that as a country. And as of just before you and I started, I checked to see and I went through a bunch of CEOs, CEO of Cisco Systems, CEO of Oracle Systems, CEO of of AWS, CEO of Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as of now, I, with a bunch of Googling, I cannot find one tech CEO other than Elon who's come out and taken proactive action to support the uh, Ukrainian people. And what I think is equally important and maybe even more important, why are we still, why are SaaS companies still doing business in Russia? Why are IT infrastructure companies still doing business in Russia? It doesn't make any sense to me. And so uh, the lack of leader, and look, there's been some good things. Microsoft, it's very clear they're doing things on the cybersecurity front that are pretty extraordinary. I just read an article about that. So all hats off to them. But what here's what I have not seen. Major tech CEOs come forward and say, we are no longer accepting 
uh, Russian blood money, period, full stop. And we're going to shut you out of the, of the, the digital now and the digital future. Fuck you until you stop. Well, why haven't we seen that leadership in our industry, Brian? I, I, I agree with you. I think it's, uh, it's really too bad. I don't know why. Like, let's, let's go back to the, was it Jamal Khashoggi? Uh, killing and you know what was what was the then response you know i mean a couple people didn't show up for a conference was sort of the big part of it right um yeah it's uh you kind of got to make a stand right but Uh, normally we see some tech ceos being really you know real leaders on you know quote-unquote social issues on this one not so much I don't fucking hear anything. I mean, I'm tweeting my ass off. Stop doing business with Russia. And like, I get ar- I get arguments with people. People said to me that Elon on Twitter, people said to me, Elon giving, um, giving them Starlink sets a, a horrifying precedent. I said, a horrifying precedent for what? They said, do we really want billionaires interfering in war? And I said, I think that's the wrong question. I think the question is anybody who is uh, doing their best to, to solve the problem called an illegal invasion and mass murder is a fucking hero. And yet people get their heads screwed on wrong about this. And so why is our industry, even in the VC world, why aren't more leaders in tech coming out and saying, we are no longer doing business with Russia, period, full stop, end of discussion? Over the weekend, I, you know, I, I signed on to it. There, there was a bunch of, st- there was a, a letter and some s- stuff in the, in the healthcare life sciences world uh, going on about it. But, you know, the, those, those very large businesses, other than, I guess, you know, I think Brian Chesky at Airbnb uh, committed what a hundred, hundred thousand Airbnbs. I saw that too. And he did something very similar for Afghan refugees. Right. Exactly. Like he, like, so done a, actually a really a really nice job recognizing that it's incumbent upon you to take a stand. But no Gates, no Bezos, no Zuckerberg, um, no Safra Katz or Larry Ellison. And shockingly, no Mark Benioff. He made one tweet that I saw talking about how courageous Ukrainians are and so forth and so on. He lit up the tower with the flag. Yeah, which is great all day long. But um, why haven't you said anything about... You know, a guy like him, and I admire the shit out of him on many levels, but, you know, he takes a stand against governors who are anti-gay marriage and does all these sorts of things. And yet we're many days into this now, and we've not heard from any of these folks. Yeah, certainly not. They, they have a larger pulpit than they've been using. Well, and the question that I have is, um, are we really, as business leaders, going to put profit ahead of peace? Is that what we're doing? Do we want... I mean, to sound overly dramatic, but I mean, do we really want our paychecks dipped in Ukrainian blood? And even if you could give a fuck about the Ukrainian people, don't you understand that, like, this thing could go in a lot of horrible directions. We could be at the beginning of something very, very fucking horrible for the Ukrainian people and beyond. And so I, the, the inaction from our industry, to me, is disturbing and disgusting. 100%. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. And uh, now I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Theranos. I thought, by the way, I listened to the dropout when it first started prior to the trial. And then I can't remember exactly when you came in, but, uh, but you were in like, I don't know, 
a bunch of the meaty ones. And I'm sitting there listening to you. you know, I'm sitting in my garden listening to you. And I'm going, Brian is nailing it here. So, so give me, if you wouldn't mind, uh, your s- sort of synthesis of it now and, and what you think the implications, if any, might be going forward. So Theranos leadership lied, right? And uh, proactively deceived. You can't do that. Shouldn't do it. Can't do it. Uh, you know, my belief is there should be jail time for that. Right? Do you think she'll get it, Brian? I do. Now, I don't understand why that sentencing was put off for so long. Like, it's not till September or something. I actually don't understand that one. They said it was because the Sonny Belwani case hasn't happened yet. Okay, yeah, but she's been declared guilty. So, like, anyway. It's not like her, exactly. What's her sentence going to influence people more? And the other thing is a side note. Why does our judicial system look for people who've never heard anything about this, right? So that's your number, unless I missed it. And I watched this one pretty fucking carefully because I think there's important implications here. But if I understand our judicial system, when they go to build the jury, instead of quote unquote, building a jury of her peers, that is to say entrepreneurs, tech investors, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. They build a jury of people who've never heard about this before. Yeah. That boggles my mind. If you don't know how startup bias versus knowledge. Well, yes. Yeah, I guess. And you know, the other one that is of course emerged, which is what's the difference. Say I'm an entrepreneur, your legendary investor, who you are. And I come to you and I say, here's my vision. I have a point of view. I'm going to build this new category. We're going to dominate it. We're going to be a hundred billion dollar publicly traded company, so forth and so on. Their argument seemed to me, Hey, she was just an entrepreneur with big dreams and big visions and it didn't work out, and there's nothing illegal about that. Why do you think that's not the case? Well, because she lied. <laughs> it, it wasn't. It was. It wasn't. Oh, you know. Here's here here's here's what I'm going to build. Right. I'm going to take over the world. Here are my projections for X and Y. It was. You know, we're running these tests on our machine. We have this that we have this stuff that is working and functional, and it wasn't true. Right. So you can have a vision, you just can't lie. I I think that's a fair <laughs> distinction. Right? Like it feels to me like you know vision encouraged, but you know you know trust but verify, make up your own mind. Lying feels like that's out of bounds. Right. And saying that we you were planning to ship this product on this date with these capabilities um, and then missing that ship date is not criminal. But what is criminal is telling people your device does X, producing results from that device, knowing full well that it didn't do X and people making life decisions regarding that. In the case of the investors, investors making decisions around, in some cases, you know, 50, 100 million dollars. Uh, to invest in a company based on its founder telling me that it can do these things now versus its planning, hoping, dreaming on doing these things going forward. Yeah, I got to say, from my perspective, I, I was disappointed that the investor fraud charges were the ones that she got convicted on and the patient deception fraud charges she did not. I found that a head scratcher too. Yeah, you know, again, it, it's... In, in a world where 
all of us should be should be focused on the the end value and commitments and trust of users and and the people who are affected by things whether you're management or an investor or whoever right like that 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 should be your touchstone your north star um you know the that that bond of trust and breaking it should that that should frankly be the the big the big no no like yeah you know you, you you shouldn't lie to anybody but but the notion that you know the court the judicial system suggests that it's definitely a no no to lie to investors but the patience thing we couldn't really decide on that feels like a, it feels like a shame i couldn't agree more i thought it was pretty pretty upsetting and, and we do see tech companies do the right thing you know, I'm sure you've seen this recently where Apple launched um, these things called AirTags. Yep. And uh, these nefarious assholes were using it for nefarious things, going into bars and dropping them in women's purses and following them home and, you know, all this sort of horrible shit. And as soon as that became very clear, best I could tell, I didn't, I, I mean, I watched it, but I, I'm not a security expert, but best I could tell, Apple moved pretty quickly to create new functionality to tell you that there was a uh, Air air tracker that was on you somewhere near you that was not yours. And so, yep. you know, they don't, they maybe didn't get this one right out of the chute, but it appears to me anyway, um, that they tried to move pretty quickly after the fact. You can't get everything right out of the chute though. Right. Like, cause you never do anything. And so to me, the, the real test of people's metal is how quickly, do, how quickly and completely do they react to something and, and own it and fix it. Right. Yep. And they've done, they, 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 they have a history of doing a pretty good job on that stuff. I trust them. They all got all yeah. my data. I'm exactly. okay. I, you know, yeah. and uh, if we've learned one thing, we've learned that if we're going to have these big tech companies who have this surveillance uh, ability into our whole lives, you know, I'd rather them be Google and Microsoft and Apple, then uh, ByteDance with TikTok, that, that terrifies the shit out of me. But that's just me. Yeah, no, I think you think you're gonna I think you're gonna have, you know, data data cuts both ways. And so you gotta be able to trust the people who have it, right? And it's you make an agreement, right, that people can have the data so that you can you as a user can benefit from the data. But you got to trust them. You got, but there's there's an implicit pact there. Yes. Now I know I don't have you for much longer because you got to go uh, change the world and fix the world. I guess maybe two questions. One is, and I know this is super hard given what we've uh, been talking about. But how do you see? Um, you know, if you were advising me, if I was a CEO of a company that you were invested in, how do you see the the remainder of the year? And what advice would you give me to deal with uh, the times we are in? I think the toughest thing about the times we're in is that many, most entrepreneurs and CEOs have never been in this type of time before, right? Most folks in businesses uh, grew up in a world where capital was pretty easy to get. And if you, if you didn't make your, if you didn't make your, your, you know, your business maturity goals, revenue, whatever it is, but 
spent all the money, you just go out and got more money, right? Um, uh, and we're definitely entering into a less forgiving environment. Um, I think that environment lasts this year, maybe the better part of next. I think it gets easier because I think at some point here, uh, you know, let's call it summer, um, things stop, stop going south, right? And so you're at a new, you're at a new level, you know, let's make it easy and tangible. You, you know, you've gone from companies have gone from, you know, 20 to 30 X revenue multiples to eight to 10 X revenue multiples. But, you know, but at least you're, you, but, but, but there's some stability there. It's, it's less, uh, it, it's less lucrative than it was previously. But the problem with right now is like, let's, let's go to human nature. No, people don't look, people don't love looking like idiots, but what they really hate is looking like an idiot quickly. Right? Like nobody likes that. And so the notion of, of investing while things are still going down, I think has a bunch of people just being like, I'm going to sit and wait. Like, let's just see what happens. Right. And so the question is, I think the, the early stage companies, they don't spend a lot of money. Things get pretty easy. Successful companies that are either profitable or, you know, bouncing around cash flow break even again, pretty easy. Right. It's the companies that started to scale before they had their business model totally figured out. So the margin structures are thinner. The customer acquisition costs are high. They're burning lots of capital. That's where I think people need to take a hard look at what they're doing right now. So you see capital spending coming down for all the obvious reasons. I think so. Yeah. Should. But you, what I didn't hear you say is that you're, wor you're worried about World War III. You did not say that. No, and I question, the interesting question is, is that because I shouldn't be worried about it or because it's so new that I just haven't factored it into my calculus yet, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm still the monkey with hands over my face. Yeah, I think most, most of us are. Again, you know, it, it, we're, we're all really good at incremental projections. It's the, it's the real game changer projections that we all suck at. Yeah. Right. And World War Three would would be that. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, just a total disconnect. But you think if I'm a CEO in a capital intensive business, I should be rethinking some of those expenditures if I'm planning on ramping. I certainly wouldn't ramp my expenses. In the hopes that revenue comes in in the back end, of, in the back half of the year. Right? right. I think the third rail of needing more capital, certainly in the for, for public companies out there. Right, the ones that have gotten hurt the most have been ones that the market thinks are going to need more capital. Yeah, because it's it's hard to believe there's going to be capital available in three to six months from now the way it was six months ago. Hundred percent. Yeah, and the more you need, the probably the tougher, the harder it gets, more painful. Yeah. It gets. Right. So get get cash flow positive. Start start building the war chest and start thinking about being parsimonious around major capital expenditures. Yeah. Or, or, you know, the other way to look at it honestly is, you know, most people think about, okay, I have money for X time. And what they then do is they put out a set of projections, right. For that time. You know, the other way to think about it is think about having the money that you have 
to get you to the projections, regardless of how much time that takes. Yes. And right. assume it's going to be longer. Yeah. It always, yeah. pretty much always is. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. You can, you can ask a contractor to build you a new garage and he'll say it's going to take two months and it fucking takes four months. And you go, well, <laughs> it's just a general rule. right? Exactly. All right, Brian, anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap, sir? No, Chris, buddy, it's good to talk to you. I hope you do. It's well. great to talk to you. It's great to see you. I'm glad you're looking so good as usual. And, um, Thank you, brother. I think, you know, the other ha-ha I'd sort of leave you with is one of the things that I've learned about all this stuff is, you know, there's a little bit we might be able to do to help influence the outcome with Ukraine. Um, hopefully we can influence some people in the tech industry to stop doing business in Russia. But the most powerful thing I think all of us can do beyond trying to do our part in a global crisis like this is do what we're best at. You know, this is what people have explained to me. And so... I think those of us who make our livings and, and love being part of the startup world and helping entrepreneurs build extraordinary value and making a difference where there was no value before, that seems like an important thing to be doing now as well. Yeah. Agreed. Thank you, Brian. Okay, buddy. Talk to you soon. Well, there he is, the legendary Brian Roberts from Venrock Capital, one of the most... Uh, celebrated VCs in Silicon Valley and a man that can, uh, many consider the number one health tech, healthcare tech investor in the world. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it with the people that you love and respect right now. There's a share button on almost every uh, podcast app, whether you're listening on Spotify, Apple, Google, or anything else. And so why not share it with somebody you love right now? And we always deeply appreciate it when you share our work on social media. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for the gift of your time. We deeply appreciate it. Our friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org, the nonprofit helping you plan, dream, and live your best life. Our good friends at Bottleneck.online, the first dedicated distant assistant. Imagine having a real person enabled by technology, who's a legendary assistant, who's not near you and will never get near you. <laughs> Check out bottleneck.online today. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out atre.net today. And don't forget socrates.ai. Make your company employee awesome by allowing your people to talk or text any question and get an answer. That's Socrates.ai. All right, I need to remind you that this information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It contains content and information known to the state of California to cause radically different thinking. All rights do remain perturbed. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie J do legendary technical execution and build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon. Web development by the brothers RJ and EX Bobis. And Cedric Biros is our uh, web and graphic designer. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accounts are three balance sheet to the wind. Uh, by the way, your spouse texted and said it's okay. You can go ahead and subscribe to Category Pirates. Please spread podcasts, not viruses, and support freedom and democracy. Ukraine, we're sending our thoughts, prayers, and our money. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Vlad. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Please stay safe, stay legendary, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>